Good morning. Um, I'll tell you, that's by far the, the biggest difference in being able to be here versus having to be online. For those of you who are online and haven't had a chance to be here, um, I think it's probably pretty much a similar, if not the exact, almost identical experience to uh, hearing me talk online or, or in person, probably to make a whole lot of difference, a little less, you know, spit row up here on the front, the splash zone here. But other than that, it's pretty much the same experience. But man, being in the room together when we can worship is just, when we can sing praises as a part of our worship is, there's just some, some, something extra there. So I'm glad you guys are here this morning. Um, I, real quickly, is any, do we have anyone here who's prepared to be an interpreter for the deaf? Our normal interpreter, a couple of interpreter or two are not present. Um, and they're, the longs are very patient. If you aren't very good at it, it's okay. They're they're willing to help you learn as well. If anybody is, just grab a chair and come over here and sit here with them. Um, otherwise, they'll probably have a superior experience to all the rest of you uh, this morning or have to listen to me. Okay, so uh, really, uh, we love having George and Tierra here, and so I'm bummed that they're, if no one's here to do that. That's okay. That's okay. Um, okay, last little bit of, of information. Um, I'm encouraged. It looks like we're, we're probably at that about 300 number, which means we have about 250 people who are registering and coming, and another 50-ish guests and, and those of us who forget to register, or staff, or whatever, who don't, and that's, which is great. If this starts to feel crowded to you, or feel in any way unsafe to you, um, or whatever, one, make sure you're registering, um, and that's one, to make sure we're in a good place there, and all that's good. Um, if, if this feels, again, you may, this time, uh, may, may be the, if, you, if you're feeling, if you, at some point you begin to feel that, just know at the 9 o'clock service there's typically more room right now, although this morning was, was pretty full, um, and then there's plenty of other options, obviously online or whatever, and again, one of the best ways for us to deal with that is to register. So um, please keep doing that for the time being, and we're continuing. You got the FAQ, hopefully email this week explaining some of the things that we're going to be working on and that kind of stuff, so we're excited to have everybody here. I'm so glad we can um, and then finally, I feel like I need to kind of uh, uh, report on, kind of tell on one of the staff members, and, uh, and, and he, this week, um, in, in our staff meeting, you guys won't believe this, but Paul McKenzie in our staff meeting, when we were in staff meeting, referred to the fact that I had hoped to get all the way through chapter 7 today, Daniel chapter 7, as, and I quote, delusional. Um, and so I'm really heartbroken at his sinful and ris- disrespectful attitude. Um, <laughs> I mean, he's right. I'm not going to get through chapter 7 today, but it was still horribly disrespectful. So uh, anyway, uh, we will get a, a ways into it, and uh, um, it's, it's, I, I, he, I, what he knows, I guess, about me is he knew I had not finished studying it myself, and so as I unpack some of this stuff, I just get excited about some of it. I mean, this is just, this is cool stuff, and, and I get really caught up in it, and, and sure enough, uh, I'm not going to make it all the way through, but we'll make some, just some headway today. We're going to start in verse 7. Um, the first three beasts, creatures that we've run into, were like something. Uh, the first one was like a lion with eagle's wings. Then we have like a bear with ribs. Then we have like a leopard. I mean, a leopard with four heads and four wings, but like a leopard, right? So now I want you to notice, as we're looking in, in verse, starting in verse 7, this fourth beast is, is different. This is a different animal, so to speak. After I saw the vision, saw, I'll try again. After this, I saw in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, terrifying and dreadful and exceedingly strong, and had great iron teeth. It devoured and broke in pieces and stamped what was left with its feet. 
It was different from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. What do you notice? What's different? What's missing? It's not like. It's not like anything. This beast is so outside of Daniel's thinking that he doesn't even have an animal to compare it to. This is different. There's something extraordinary about this one. And sure enough, as always, um, with biblical concepts, there have been efforts at art for this beast. Um, uh, we'll, I'm going to talk more about that. So first, some jump to the monster slash dragon motif. And so I think we've got the first one. So they've got to give it you know, the proper number of horns and the claws and all that kind of stuff. So, I mean, that's, that's not bad. Or, or even another, even more clearly dragon-esque appearance here. Um, and then we have other, this is the most intriguing to me, then we have another set that they jump straight to the dinosaur motif, which I think is interesting. So down in the right corner there, um, I mean, we're, we're going flat dinosaur with horns down there. And, uh, or even the next one, which makes even more sense, the, going with the triceratops attempt, um, which is interesting. Um, and then the last one, which is just a T-Rex with horns. Oh, one more back. There we go, the T-Rex with weird horns. Um, okay, so you've got all kinds of efforts at this, but it, they all fail, which is why I like the, that, this next one, which shows all four of them. But it shows the beast in the back as kind of this shadowy, dark, mysterious thing. Because here's one of the things to remember as we go through these apocryphal passages, meaning a place where God has pulled back the veil and is revealing something that humans wouldn't normally know about what He's doing. So as He pulls back this veil to reveal what God, what God revealing what He's doing in His work on the earth, there's a mystery in that. And, and so don't misunderstand as we teach through this, our goal isn't to remove the mystery. That's not going to happen. Even if it was our goal, it would, we would fail at it. Our goal is to bring clarity to what we can learn from it and, and what we can gain from in our own hearts, and our own lives. But understand, the mystery is, is hardwired into apocryphal literature like this. And so as we, as we do unpack this, there's still going to always be questions. And part of that is the reminder to us that in the midst of a God who knows all things, we don't. In the midst of being, having things revealed to us, there's only so far He can take us, and only so far He's willing to take us in understanding. He doesn't want the mystery to be removed for us. He wants us to still have to wrestle through the fact that this is a transcendent God. And his, what He reveals to us is only what He chooses to reveal to us, what He thinks we need to know. So when we see this fourth beast, it's described not so much physically, it's harder to picture, but in action, what it does. It devours with iron teeth the whole earth. What it can't devour, it crushes. Verse 8, I considered the horns. It's about to get really strange. And behold, there came up among them another horn. So an eleventh one. A little one. Which, before which three of the first horns were plucked up by the roots. And behold, in this horn were eyes like the eyes of a man and a mouth speaking great things. With great hair, you shouldn't imagine, you know, some great orator. This isn't like a Winston Churchill type of character. This means great as in self-aggrandizing. Great as in prideful, arrogant, um, uh, even blasphemous. That the, the, This horn is declaring great things about itself as it jumps up to begin to speak. 
When we were looking at this passage, uh, John and Paul and I were discussing this passage, one of the things that stood out to us is where this hits in Daniel's life. So here we have Daniel, he's probably around but in his 50s or 60s, and he's, he's been under Nebuchadnezzar for many, many years. And so, and so he's, he greatly respects, we saw that, he greatly respects Nebuchadnezzar, there's a lot of affection between he and Nebuchadnezzar as friends, as this almost father figure, whatever, and then, and then now here he is, and he's taken, the, the, the grandson of Nebuchadnezzar has taken over, and there's nothing, there's no respect between these two. Um, Daniel respects the office, clearly, and we see that, but he doesn't have a lot of respect for the man, Belshazzar. And Belshazzar seems to be either unaware of Daniel's existence, which seems impossible, or more likely dismissive of Daniel. And so, again, when the handwriting on the wall, when the, wall, when the writing on the wall appears, it doesn't even cross Belshazzar's mind to seek Daniel out as someone who might have a shot at interpreting this. Um, he has to be told that by his, probably his grandmother. So instead, what we have is this probably what is a pretty discouraging time for Daniel. And we're going to see this discouraging time for Daniel continue. Daniel's worn out as he sees this, kid, this new king come up who's, who's really kind of a moron and, and historically even thought of that way. And, and he's going to have to engage with this guy in this new isolation. His friends, Hananiah, Azariah, and Mishael, aren't mentioned. They're probably dead. In fact, most of the people who were exiled with him may already be dead. And so here we have Daniel, who was a young man when kidnapped and brought to Babylon, probably feeling pretty alone. And so in a good gift, God gives him a dream to reveal his own plans. That's good, but there's also something hard within this. In fact, each of these dreams is going to be kind of hard on Daniel in its own way. So he has this terrifying dream in the midst of what's going on here, this great horn, this horn, this little horn that becomes a great horn, at least declares itself great. And some people think that already we're starting to see the introduction of a very important character in Jewish history. Now, he's not one of the main people we study here in the West, but an important person whose name is Antiochus Epiphanes. And Antiochus is a Greek leader. He's actually a, a, a leader of the Greek in, within the Greek empire, not so much the Roman empire, although that's becoming messy and mixed at this time in history. Um, and he's going to come to Jerusalem, and he, he hates the Jews. The way Hadrian later, as a Roman emperor, will hate the Jews, he hates the Jewish people. Now, they, in all fairness, they're a tough group of people to lead, especially if you enslave them. They're a tough group of people to lead that way. They, they don't follow easily. Um, and so, sure enough, they're, they're going to run into that um, here's what, and, and by the way, we're going to learn much more about Antiochus Epiphanes later because there is another prophecy that pretty much everyone, not, not quite everyone, but most people agree, is at least fulfilled by him very specifically. We'll get there. But to introduce him to you, so here you have a proud, blasphemous, boastful man who loved nothing more than making war against the Jews, and his name means God manifests, kind of like God with us, like Jesus Christ talking, being Jesus being the Emmanuel, God with us, that's the same kind of language being used here. And in 167 BC, so 150 to 200 years before the birth of Christ, that's what we're talking about, the Jews were under Greek rule and Antiochus was thought to be dead. They thought that he had died in Egypt, the Jewish people did. The word got out that he had died. So they threw off the, the yoke of Antiochus Epiphanes, they, they took back their capital city and they began to practice being their own leaders, their own government, and their own faith, thinking he was dead. Unfortunately for them, 
he wasn't. When he hears about this, he puts together an army to come suppress this, and when he does, um, he slaughters 40,000 Jews in taking the city, largely women and children, and enslaves a bunch of them as well. Another 40,000 were allegedly enslaved. This is, he just comes and brutalizes the Jewish people in the city. Then he outlaws all Jewish religious rites and traditions. He orders the worship of Zeus in place of Yahweh, and at least some think set up a statue of Zeus, an idol of Zeus in the temple in Jerusalem, and then sacrificed a pig on the Jewish altar in honor of, Je- of Zeus. Okay? So there's nothing really subtle about Antiochus Epiphanes you're probably picking up, right? To, to put the temple, to put Zeus's statue in the temple itself, to put banners and stuff to Zeus all over the temple, and then, of all things, to slaughter, of course, a pig in the Jewish temple um, to Zeus. He is meant in every way possible to be as offensive as possible. He wanted the Jewish people to cease to exist. It's always interesting, isn't it? How many people throughout history have wanted the Jewish people to cease to exist? I mean, it's, it's wild to me what a pattern there is of world history that, that somehow circles what is relatively a tiny population of people, and it seems to have almost no impact, but everybody, an evil ruler rises up, and it seems like one thing that would unite all of them is, let's get rid of the Jews. It's, it's really wild to me. Um, so we'll unpack this guy much later. He fulfills some of this heading of this little horn, but not perfectly. Again, we would expect that. Two reasons we would expect that. One, there is a mystery. There are details here that we may never know about. There are things that may have happened behind the scenes that God knows about that we will not know until maybe someday we can take a seminar in heaven about it. But we won't get that kind of detail. Two is, remember the birth pangs model, and I want you to see this, the birth pangs model which, of understanding prophecy, which is that these prophecies, they're like ripples in the water. They're, they're vibrations. They hit, and then they go away, and then they hit again, and then they go away, and they hit again. We're going to get to one about Antiochus Epiphanes that's so specific that, that it's almost, he's almost named. It's so specific later. But, but we see this. There's a, there's a fulfillment of a prophecy, not flawlessly, not perfect by our understanding. And then, and then there's some time, and then it hits again and again. And we've seen this. We've seen this over and over again. It may be, I don't know this, but it may be that the last time this happens, it's kind of like the birth pangs model you don't really have the full-blown whole purpose of the birth pang until the baby comes. And it may be that when the last little horn appears, when the last fourth beast appears, they will fall into, and it'll be locked pieces. It'll be like a puzzle that now all the pieces fit and all the pieces hit. It may not. It may still be mysterious. But that's, that's one reason that people think maybe it's not exactly dead on um, in some cases. Some of them, we're going to get to a couple in Daniel that are freakishly dead on, and we can be confident that those have faced um, a very clear fulfillment. But that's what we're going to run into. So I want to show you to what degree there's this repetition, these, these models that come out and then go back. So I'm going to get this half of the room. If you will, if you would open up to Daniel chapter 2. So this is Daniel's prophecy, or Daniel's interpretation of Nebuchadnezzar's dream. So if you guys will open up to Daniel 2 and especially look at verses 40 and 42, I'm going to get this half of the room to instead run to the other end of the Bible at Revelation chapter 13 and be looking at verses 1 through 5. Okay, so pull out your Bible, Revelation 13, 1 through 5. Again, back over here, Daniel 2, 40 and 42. So 
As you look at these, Daniel's interpreting for Nebuchadnezzar, he's having a similar vision, a similar dream about similar events. So, so let me ask some questions. Who has, when you're looking at your Bible, who sees the repetition of the idea of a fourth kingdom? Who sees fourth kingdom? Raise your hands high. Okay, so big, big old fourth kingdom over here. How about iron? Do you see the model of iron? Okay, big old concept of iron over here. How about a beast rising out of a sea? Anybody see that? Yeah, this whole side, you're going to see a beast coming out of the sea. Anybody see ten horns? Good, yep, okay. Um, anybody see a leopard referenced? Yep. Bear? Lion? Uh-huh, all of those are in Revelation 13. Do you have, a, do you have someone muttering haughty, blasphemous words? speaking these great words. You see those over in Revelation? Yeah, Revelation 13, 5. The beast was given a mouth, uttering haughty and blasphemous words. How about, um, how about do you see uh, the idea of iron teeth? Oh, we talk about iron. How about breaking and destroying? Anybody see breaking and destroying? Yes, you do? Good. This, this picture that we get as we look through these passages is that idea. We're seeing this presented, and there's going to be a fulfillment, and then later it's going to be presented again, because here's what's wild. When John writes in John 13, the vision he's getting, much of what he's writing is similar to Daniel, but Daniel has already been largely fulfilled in the Roman Empire. We'll talk about that in a second. And so now, how can that be the case? Well, some people say, well, obviously, then John is writing historically. He's writing about the Roman Empire in the past. Certainly plausible. And I would say, you're right, he is. And he's writing about future events that are going to happen after John writes this. Because remember, it's not one or the other in prophetic writing in the Bible. When God unveils something, he's showing us something that's going to happen. But it's not only going to happen once. It's going to happen, and then it's going to happen, and then it's going to happen. And this is why it's confusing to us. Often when I'm teaching a lot of theology classes, I will have people ask the question, a question like this, do you believe the Antichrist is alive in the world today? I think the correct answer for all Christians has always been yes. A little later, we're going to talk more about this concept of an Antichrist, maybe even next week, some. But of course, that's the assumption. Remember, the only place in the Bible where the term Antichrist shows up in John's writings is actually not Revelation, it's in his letters. And we see this idea of antichrists, it's plural, people who have the spirit of the antichrist, meaning they're in opposition to God, but they're just being folded into his plan. And that's the picture that we're going to get. Of course, there have been multiple people who fulfilled that role. Belshazzar is one of them. Each of these kingdoms is one of them. Antiochus Epiphanes is one of them. Julius Caesar is one of them. Adolf Hitler is one of them. We see plenty of people who have fulfilled these roles over and over again. And then eventually there will be a, quote, final one. So here, this iron kingdom, <clears throat> I think the best presentation we have of the iron kingdom historically, the first time we see this fulfilled is, in fact, Rome. I think that's the best argument that can be made. I understand some of the others. But you remember, you remember how we talked about, so what makes this one stand out? What, what made the leopard thing stand out was its speed. The fact that it's a leopard, fast. The fact that it's, that it's got four sets of four wings, Again, even faster, times four fast. And as, it's, as we have this idea, and in fact we see Alexander the Great, 
conquer essentially the whole known world in just 12 years, which will be an impressive feat for anybody, even with modern airplanes and, and tanks and stuff like that. And yet the known world at the time was conquered almost completely by Alexander the Great in only 12 years with nothing faster than a horse. The only thing might be more impressive than doing it in 12 years is doing it in across a thousand years. And that's what Rome did. Rome conquered and conquered and continued to conquer and was always looking for more people to conquer for a thousand years, the thousand-year reign of Rome and plus. And in fact, even then, it's hard to distinguish exactly, you go, when was the fall of Rome? Because in many ways, Rome won the debate as far as impacting the future of mankind. Our culture is largely a Roman culture. They're especially modeled after the Roman Republic. That's really what, what our culture is not modeled after. The, the entire Western culture is modeled after Roman mindset. A lot of our philosophies, whether we know it or not, are largely dictated by similarities that we had with the Roman mindset. We call the work ethic the Judeo-Christian work ethic, but we might should call it the Roman imperial work ethic. Uh, because that whole idea that we should be constantly changing and growing and improving is Roman. We should never settle and be done is very Roman. That idea of there's always more to conquer, there's always more to discover, there's always more to do, there's always more advancements to make. Rome was the beginning of the technological increase. We saw everything was pretty similar for a long time, and then we start under the Greeks and then into the Romans seeing this idea that like, wait a minute, we'll never stop improving. Well, we can always get better. Some of that has led to some pretty dark, awful stuff. Some of it's also why we have, you know, an obesity problem in America for all of us, even among our homeless people. When you've got a culture, so, so nowadays we measure wealth in dollars, but we shouldn't. Historically, wealth has been measured in calories. And when you've got enough calories that even your homeless people have an obesity problem, man, you're cranking out calories as a culture, aren't you? I mean, it's, we have to all have to expend extra money to try to get rid of the extra calories, right? So there's no, there's no one's ever been like that before, where you have a whole culture where even homeless people aren't starving to death, but in fact have too many calories. That's a, that's a fascinating issue to deal with. A lot of that comes from the Roman mindsets that we deal with. In so many ways, the Roman mindset has conquered the whole world because the Western concept has now infected all the others. But here's what's wild. In fact, it was still called the Roman Empire, the Eastern Roman Empire was still in existence until 1453. Only about 500 years ago, 550 years ago, you still had a part of the world called the Roman Empire. So when I say a thousand years, I really mean more like 2,000 years. And in addition to that, here's what's cool for us to recognize that there's going to be this kingdom that comes alongside and destroys and absorbs, and in some ways that's already begun to happen because somewhere along the way it stopped being called the Roman Empire and started being called what? The Holy Roman Empire because what defined it was its relationship to the church, although that's always messy, huh? So there's a lot more to that that we could get into, but we're not going to. So does Rome fit? Well, you know, not perfectly, yes and no. But again, we would predict that. The birth pang idea, the mystery concept is wrapped into that. And then speaking of terrifying images, we get through these four beasts, but then there's a fifth character introduced, and this is really amazing. So there's a fifth character introduced, and, and I think for multiple reasons, the natural tendency is you think we have beast number one, beast number two, beast number three, beast number four, beast number five. 
But just like with the statue, you have statue part number one, part number two, part number three, part number four, and part number five, but part number five is not really part of the statue. It comes flying out of the sky and smashes the statue. And in many ways, you have the same concept. You have beast number one, beast number two, beast number three, beast number four, and then beast number five, but beast number five is not a beast at all. And so he's, this third person is introduced to the dream that Daniel has. And, and this is one of those hard things for us. We have a hard time wrapping our brains because when you read it, you'll notice in your Bible, you probably have a little subhead there that someone decided to put in there, which I, I really hate those things. Um, they're not part of the original, and they throw our mindset off. They're written by a, usually by very Western thinkers, and they're put in there in a way that makes sense to us. So you have one, two, three, four, and then you have a break, a break and a paragraph and a chapter heading that says usually the Ancient of Days. Is that what yours says? And I wish I had a copy of the ESV without those, because I get there and I start going, oh, this is the section about the Ancient of Days when I should have just been reading straight through and experiencing it like Daniel wanted it to be experienced. But I, I read through it and I get there, and studying it, I realize there's a sense in which it's almost like there's a fifth creature, but it's not a creature. It's very different. It's not a creature at all. And then Daniel makes it even more clear that he wants your brain to be thinking differently because this section is written in a Jewish poetry form. And he draws your attention very clearly to this as Daniel looks. As I looked, thrones were placed. And the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames. Its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came out from before him. A thousand thousands served him. And 10,000 times 10,000 stood before him. And a court, the court sat in judgment and the books were opened. So not a fifth beast, but a fifth character is introduced to the dream. And he's introduced in a really fascinating way. Notice that he's, he doesn't come up out of the sea. Remember what the sea represents? Mankind. He doesn't come from the sea. He's not one of us. Just like the other four beasts represent, they're one of us. They're, each of them are somehow part of the race of man. This is not. He comes from a different place. Then you have this great scene. So again, I don't know how many of you, any of you have been in theater? You, you, the, one of the cool things in theater that's always kind of fun is the effort to maintain the illusion. And one of the things they do is they always have you know, people dressed all the way, it's like solidly in black. The lights are down. Sometimes the curtains close and you hear people scraping stuff around behind. The directors hate that, by the way. They, they want you to be totally silent when you're, they're resetting the room. One of the things we used to love to do when I was in theater is we would always try to sneak somebody onto or into some of the uh, props. And like, like they'd bring a couch out and the curtain would open and one of us would be laying on the couch pretending to be asleep like we were caught backstage sleeping on the props. And then you jump up and you're like, by the way, the directors hate that. You only do that the last night. You don't ever try to do anything earlier. You're in huge trouble. So um, so here's what I picture, right? Look how it starts. Thrones were placed. I immediately go to that. There's a bare room, and then here comes a bunch of guys, solid black, and they're setting out thrones. They're setting out chairs because something special is about to happen, and they're setting the stage, so to speak, right? The Ancient of Days took his seat, so someone comes in and takes the main seat, it's a beautiful picture, but again, it creates exactly what this is intended to be. Notice this is a courtroom drama. The set that's being, the set that's being staged, or the stage that's being set, whichever one is right, is a courtroom drama. And so this, these things are being put out, and then this one character walks out. And here's what's intriguing. In the language here, it's not written like a name or a title, but as a description. And yet, 
it clearly is communicated in the process as a title or a name. That's why we have songs to the Ancient of Days, like we sang this morning. Incidentally, that term appears only in Daniel chapter 7. The phrase, the Ancient of Days. It really literally means a really old dude. It literally means an extremely old man came out. A man who's got lots of days under his belt. But it becomes a title, the Ancient of Days, becomes a, coin, a term that's kind of coined here. He comes out. We see this represented, I think, in, in, uh, in the divine council of Psalm 82. God has taken his place in the divine council in the midst of the gods. He holds judgment. Again, we have a problem in that we, have a, we don't have throne rooms in the United States, but we have courtrooms. Those are not two separate things in a monarchy. The courtroom and the throne room are the same thing. You go to be judged by the monarch. So here we have his throne room. God is in his throne room. A seat you're put out and he sits. And there are thousands serving him. But tens of thousands times tens of thousands are standing before him. What, if, you're, if you're there standing before the judge, what's happening? You're being judged. That's exactly right. We're introduced to these four beasts... And as this part of the image is going on, Daniel sees a courtroom being set up as he sees these four beasts. What do you think the courtroom is going to be doing? They're going to be judging these beasts, these kingdoms being represented. And so sure enough, that's, that's what's going to happen. You get tons of fun little details in here. You could, you could un, we could unpack this poem by Daniel probably for a year. I have no idea how long it would take to truly. People have written books on this. But we see this Ancient of Days and how he's described. And notice he's described not in terms of an animal and not even in terms of an action, but in terms of the visual, of the visual awe that he creates. He comes in, he sits down. It is just, again, just like a courtroom. Everyone's there. Everyone's standing or everybody, whatever. And, and the bailiff says, you know, everybody's sitting in there. The bailiff comes in and says, what? All rise. And everyone stands. The guy with the gun just told you to stand. So that's what you do. You stand. And then the judge comes sweeping in in their robes, and they get up behind everybody, get up there, and they have a seat, and then those can sit. This is the picture being created, is this throne room, courtroom picture. And this is not a normal person. This guy comes in, his hair and, his, his hair and clothing are white as snow. Again, don't, this is not an ethnic statement. This isn't white like Caucasian. This is white like glowing, bright, LED, perfectly pure, bleach white. There's nothing to do with ethnicity. This is a, an expression of purity. And notice, his throne is fiery flames. The wheels are burning fire. You can read Ezekiel 1, the details of this throne. This is what one commentary called God's mobile throne. It's a chariot. It's a chariot that he stands in and makes judgment when he's moving around versus his throne. When he's standing there in this throne room... And the, wheel, and the stream of fire issued that came from before him. Again, this lets you know, this is hard news, what's about to happen. Because we see in the New Jerusalem, what flows from God's presence is a stream of living water. But here, it's a stream of fire. Judgment is coming. All these serve him. All these are opening. God takes his place. He's not from the sea. He is served by a multitude. One commentary describe this as unspeakable grandeur. 
The rest of the court, all apparently insignificant compared to him, is called into order. And verse 11, I looked then, in other words, I was distracted by, I looked then because of the sound of the great words that the horn was speaking. As I looked, the beast was killed and its body destroyed and given over to be burned with fire for the rest of the beast. Their dominion was taken away, but their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. So those who've been in courtrooms, I'm sure only as jurors, right? If you've ever been in a courtroom, what do you not do in a courtroom? Talk, right? Unless it's your turn, you stay quiet. When we went through the adoption process, being in Judge Clark's office, I mean Judge Clark's courtroom, even though you're there for happy reasons and everybody there is friends and everybody's on the same page and no one's fighting with each other, don't talk. I'm just telling you from personal experience, don't, don't speak up until, it's your, until she asks you a question. It's, it's not allowed. You do it more than a couple of times and you get to sit outside the courtroom until she's ready for you. I didn't get that far. <clears throat> this, this is a this is not a time for that. And so we have this courtroom created. And while this courtroom is being created, the loudmouth horn won't shut its mouth. You do not want to draw attention to yourself at this moment. Those of you who are students, this is when you don't make eye contact with the teacher, right? You don't want that. It's, she's asked a question you don't know the answer to. Whatever you do, don't. Don't make eye right? That's You don't want to draw attention to yourself. And the horn immediately draws attention to himself and the beast that he's a part of. And so he gets moved to the front of the line to be judged. This is what happens right here. Um, I know Nate Moran's over there going like, man, I'm eating this up. This is good stuff right here, right? So this is what we're experiencing right here. Don't draw attention. Don't make a sound. And in an instant, the judgment is carried out. The final beast is destroyed. The horn is silenced. The others will be judged in the right time. But for now, we want to go back to the point of all this, which is not the loudmouth horn. It is the courtroom. First, a different passage, different Paris. This idea of what's going on here, we sang about it this morning. The Revelation passage, the passage of Revelation, which John describes a very similar thing, maybe the exact same thing, but certainly a similar thing, is the throne room of God. And it's one of those amazing hair rising on the back of your neck descriptions that we get in the Bible. Some of my very favorite things, we see this, uh, this constant expanse, right? This crescendo of the worship to God. As first, just a few creatures are, are praising Him and throwing crowns, and then, and then it's more, it's all the multitude of all the angels, and then eventually it's all of creation is singing praise to Him in this massive thing in, in Revelation, starting in verse 4 and, and on. I'm going to read just a few of the verses John the Apostle, seeing almost the identical situation here, says, At once I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven, and with one seated on the throne, and he who sat there had the appearance of jasper and carnelian, and around the throne was a rainbow, that the appearance of an emerald. Around the throne were twenty-four elders, and seated on the throne were twenty-four elders, twenty-four thrones with twenty-four elders, clothed in white garments with gold crowns on their heads. Jumping forward to 5, 6, and 7. And between the throne and the four living creatures, among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain. With seven horns and seven eyes, which were the seven spirits of God sent out into the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. Here we have this amazing picture in Revelation where there's this seal, the scroll that, that has been sealed with seven seals. And John gets to get this image. It's the time for judgment. 
mankind, the race of man, the nations of man, the kingdoms of man, it's time for them to be judged. And the judgment is wrapped up in these seven, in this scroll with seven seals. And, and messengers are sent out through all of creation. Is there anyone capable of opening this scroll and causing and bringing about finally the judgment of mankind? And messengers go, and they can't find anyone. There is no one worthy to open this scroll. Because see, the problem is, you can't trust men, human beings, to, to judge themselves. But you need a representative of mankind to open this scroll, to initiate the judgment of the race of man. But there's no one who's pierced that veil. There's no one who's been both man and yet is divine and able to judge. And that's the picture being created, is that everyone goes around and there's no one like that. And in the, in the Revelation account, John begins to weep because he realizes there's no one fit to judge. The angel who's with John, who always thinks it's funny, he, this angel seems to be with John all throughout, or, or, or either that or they trade out or something. But the angel has this little mini conversation with John. He's like, no, 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 it's, it, honestly, it's okay. It's, it's going to be okay. Like, this is all for show. This is just part of the drama. Chill out. It's going to be okay. We're, we're good. There is someone. There really is. Just, it's kind of like the dad, you know, in Princess Bride, like the princess does not die at this time. It's like the, he's, he's calling, no, John, it's okay. There's going to be, it's, just, just be patient. And in fact, what happens is someone brings this little slain lamb. And the little slain lamb comes into the throne room and is actually closer to the throne room than the elders, the throne than the elders are. This little slain lamb who has a crown, and we're going to read about it, and he, and the, and the, the ancient of days, in this case, God the Father, as it presents to us, gives him the scroll, and it turns out there is someone capable of judging. In fact, a minute ago when I was describing, like, there's been no one who's done this. There's never been anyone who's been both man and God. All of you in the audience were going like, um, I mean, does he, do you think he forgot about Jesus? That's the same experience John is having in this. Is like, did they forget about Jesus? Where is Jesus? Like, he, he, there's no one who can do this? And they're going all around creation. No one can do it. Because here's the deal, guys. There's only one in all of creation who can justly, rightly, with no condemnation for him, judge us. And that's Christ. And he's shown as this little slain lamb. Revelation 5.9. Remember, this is in the throne room of God the Father. So just like you don't speak in court, actually, way bigger than that. You don't praise anyone other than God in God's throne room. One guy tried that. He came in and he put his feet up on God's desk and he got cast down out of heaven and is to be judged for eternity because of it. You don't do that. So then explain this, Revelation 5, 9 through 10, and then verse 12. This is to the Lamb. Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain and by your blood you ransomed people for God. From every tribe and language and people and nation, and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. We sang this this morning. Putting this into words is, transcends, uh, we, we really don't have the ability to do it, but we do the best we can to communicate the grandeur of this moment as the Almighty God who Daniel knows as the Ancient of Days. And we get the same thing happen, by the way, with a slightly different image. In Daniel chapter 7, look how the poem continues after the interruption by the irritating little horn. 
I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like the Son of Man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom, that all peoples, all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Sounds similar, doesn't it, to the Revelation experience, except in this form, he doesn't look like a little slain lamb. He looks like a son of man, meaning, again, it's another thing. It's a title that's not a title, a name that's not a name. It's a description, someone who looks like a a human. And this human comes in on the clouds. Now, this is an important title. This new character who's introduced, who shows up in the clouds and is called the Son of Man. What we see in the New Testament Unlike Ancient of Days, which only shows up in this chapter, the term Son of Man is used a bunch, especially by Jesus, because it is by far Jesus' favorite name for himself, his favorite description for himself. Those of you who were here for the book of John for two or three years, however long we were in John, they, that was, we, went, we ran into that over and over again. He calls himself the Son of Man. That is from this passage, and it is clearly a divine reference You have someone who is there with the Ancient of Days, being praised in the presence of the Ancient of Days. Remember, this is a courtroom drama. The Son of Man is presented as though to be judged by the Ancient of Days. And what is the judgment of the Ancient of Days on the Son of Man? Glory, power, kingdom, rulership. That's the judgment upon Jesus Christ, the Son of Man, as He's brought before God the Father... Is the judgment you face as a man is this, power, glory, that all may serve you. Listen, you don't do that in God's presence unless you are God. That's unacceptable in God's presence. This little slain lamb, he is God. The son of man, he is God. That was understood. That's why Jesus referred to himself as the son of man. This divine figure who's there in the midst of judgment, who is given the authority of all things. I don't know if I mentioned this. It's this, this, this phrase, Son of Man, shows up 81 times in the four Gospels. It's common and constant all the way through it. It's an interesting one. His verdict, dominion, glory, and a kingdom. The dream continues with the Ancient of Days. As for me, Daniel, my spirit within me was anxious, and the vision of my head alarmed me, and I approached one who stood there and asked the truth concerning this. So he told me and made known to me the interpretation of these things. Quote, the four beasts, the four great beasts are four kings who shall rise out of the earth, but the saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever and ever. We talk about giving away the ending. Hey, you know what? There's going to be a whole bunch of great and powerful and mighty kings and kingdoms. That's human history summarized in one sentence. You feel insignificant? These four great beasts are four kings who shall rise up out of the earth. Well, there you go. Human history in a sentence. The final of human history, but the saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom. In the end, it'll be their kingdom and possess the kingdom forever, forever, and ever. The final important beast, Daniel wants to understand more about it, and this is what he finds out. By the way, this beast, as we unpack more and more of these details over the next few chapters, we're going to see more details that overlap. And the beast is especially important to the people of Israel. This shouldn't be strange to us. We're an ethnocentric culture. These visions are largely ethnocentric to them about what goes on with the Jews. These are God's people within earth at this time. They are the tool that he is using to impact the world. And by the way, he did. Proof? 
is that 2,500 years later, we're talking about it today. We're, we're learning what God was teaching the race of man through His people and their exile still today. It is, an, it is an important way for us to understand God's revelation. He was revealing Himself to us through His people over two millennia ago, and we still get to learn about it. So God is going to step in. This shouldn't be a surprise. By the time we're done, you should know that the main message of prophecy is this. Man fails. God redeems. That's message, and this chapter shows it yet again. These four great kingdoms, how do they do? Not so great. Turns out, not so well. When you leave things in humans' hands, we mess it up. That's the reminder for us over and over again. As we face a change, a cultural change, a cultural revolution in the West, even that we're kind of last in, in some ways in the West, the cultural revolutions that we're facing, as we see a contentious election, as we see all these things happening, just and more gasoline thrown on the fire every day, and we go, man... Who's going to step up? What human is going to step up and make this right? Stop thinking that. Give up on that. If you've not given that one up yet, we'll do it. Time to repent of your thought that human... Now, this doesn't mean we're not involved. We're involved. We vote. We're passionate. We fight. We argue. We do the things that we think God would have us do. Absolutely. And our fundamental hope is in whoever is the charge, which other human is in charge. No, ma'am. No, sir. Stop that. Cut that out. That's not how that's going to work. Man will always end up failing. Only God will be able to step in and redeem. Don't be surprised. This is our pattern chapter after chapter after chapter. It's how it's always gone. I don't know why we think it would be different. Eventually, there will be a final failure and a final redemption. We look forward to that day. So let's wrap up. Let's pray together. We're going to see more and more of this. In the end, though man fails, in the end, there's a kingdom and that kingdom will be given to God's people, and God's people will reign with Him forever and forever and ever. That's our hope, our final hope.